Well, it's good to be back home again, even just for a few days. Um, this day next week, I'll be in Ijest in southern Ukraine, speaking at a, a, a graduation service of our students, and then moving on from there into Hungary uh, after a long overnight train ride uh, to speak at a school in Seged. So, I, I would appreciate your prayers again. I'd love to be able to say, I was hoping I'd be able to say tonight, you know, that uh, I've just flown in from Orlando, but uh, I've just flown in from Bristol. doesn't just seem uh, to have the same ring about it, you know, but we, Dorothy and I really appreciate your prayers and your thoughtfulness over the last uh, few weeks. And, uh, and certainly the time in Scotland with SGA was tremendously encouraging, really encouraging again. And uh, we had five lovely days with our family in Cornwall. And probably you see uh, from the scalded head that we did have good, good weather. I hope you did as well. So thank you for your prayers. Very, very much appreciated indeed. Well, we're turning back to John's Gospel tonight, to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And we're going to begin to read again verse 20. Uh, and we'll read... Uh, this middle section uh, of, the, of the chapter. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Let's bow just for a moment in prayer. Dear Lord, we follow your steps in this record in John's gospel with 
uh, a sense of awe and wonder because we, we know looking back what lay ahead and we understand too that you knew what lay ahead of you yet our father you went the whole way and you did it for us and Lord we feel tonight humbled we feel so unworthy and yet our father we feel so privileged that your son should do this for us So, Lord, we pray that you will help us this evening by your Holy Spirit. As we look into these words, that there will be encouragement and blessing for your people. But, Lord, that there might be light for those who still are walking in darkness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've already said, as we've looked at this chapter, that uh, there's a, a watershed here a turning point, there's very much a a change of direction uh, in the path that our Lord Jesus was taking. Uh, Over and over again, we have seen the Lord Jesus um, walking unharmed from threatening situations, departing from those situations which threatened his life because his time had not yet come. But here the opposite note is sounded. Jesus himself declares here, that the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's impossible for us to know what effect, if any, this had on the listening disciples. Did they understand this? Did they grasp anything of the significance of it and of what followed? And as our, our Lord lifted his, his voice to his Father in heaven and, and prayed that his Father Uh, would glorify his name and the voice comes out of heaven. Uh, God speaks from heaven. The whole incident, if you like, evoked different reactions from the crowd around. Some were looking for a rational explanation. Oh, it's thunder. Others were fairly superstitious, a kind of religious superstition. An angel has spoken to him. Whatever they believed, anyhow, it wasn't that God had spoken. Did the disciples understand? Did they detect any hint, if you like, of this this traumatic turn of events which lay just ahead? Certainly when we look at the context here, there's no doubting the, the seriousness of Christ's actions leading up to this point. The entry into Jerusalem, the decision taken to set his face as a flint, as it were, to go into the city of death, was one that shows his unswerving commitment to do his father's will. He knew that he was entering upon the most extreme danger, but he didn't hesitate to enter because he was aware that what lay ahead of him was the will of his father. And he wasn't derailed or he wasn't, deceived or diverted by the hypocritical expressions of the crowd who waved palm branches before him. They cried out, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. His heart was set on pleasing his father, not pleasing the carnal earthly desires of the crowd around them because their concept 
of his destiny or of the destiny of the Messiah was very different from the, the, the truth that Jesus knew was ahead of him. He was aware of his destiny as the one who before the foundation of the world was designated to be the lamb slain for sinners. And so his father's will was paramount. And we tremble at the words, you know, the hour has come. The hour has come. For we know now what they prefaced. Yet with all our, our sadness, we also rejoice that what was to take place was for our eternal salvation. And there's a strange mixture within us, isn't there? Yeah, we're, we're a sense of foreboding. We know what the Lord was walking into, as it were. And yet, at the same time, a, a sense of, of deep gratitude because we know that he was taking those steps for us. Well, there are those still today who, like some in the crowd, try to find some rational explanation which renders the whole thing meaningless. And there are many others, of course, who have some kind of religious superstitious belief in it all, but it's little more than that. What we discover here is that our Lord was taking, if you like, the last steps on earth to fulfill what his Father wanted him to do. What I find ironic about this is that just as the waves of Jewish opposition were mounting more and more uh, to seek to crush the Lord Jesus Christ. They were, they, were, they were rising up to this awful crescendo. And it was at that point that Gentiles come desiring to meet with Jesus. These came to Philip and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, look at Christ's response. Because it seems to me that here we have the fulfillment of what John wrote earlier in the first chapter of John's Gospel. He came to his own, but his own did not recognize him. But as many as believed in him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the sons of God. And we have it here. We have it here played out before us. The Jews were mounting their opposition. They were uh, making their plans to destroy him. And in that moment, the Greeks come. And they ask for a meeting with Jesus. And, and I think that his Christ's reply here indicates the significance of that, you know. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Here was the, if you like, the fulfillment, the fulfillment of Christ's universal purpose to come into the world to save men and women from every tribe and every nation and every tongue. And then he draws this picture. And it's this picture that that I want us to concentrate on just for a few moments this evening. He, he paints a simple picture, but very profound in its meaning and application, then and now. And it's a, it's a little mini parable or a little picture 
which I think has tremendous significance for any who are here tonight not saved. But it also has a tremendous, a profound challenge for those of us who are Christ's. So, so let's look at a principle which operates in the, nat- in the natural world. A principle which operates in the natural world. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. As our Lord so often did, he, he looked around and he took pictures from nature and from the fields and from agriculture around him and he, and he used these as tremendous tools uh, uh, to paint pictures in our mind and our hearts of spiritual truth. And so he, he takes what is commonly known by them to give them an insight into a world which they cannot see with the physical eye. He bids them to, to look at what they can see and then to look beyond that to see the lessons that the spiritual eye must catch hold of. Here's a law of nature. Everyone sees the truth of it. The seed must be planted in the soil. And it must die. It must die. I may have shared this with some of you before, but when I was a boy, uh, I planted some potatoes in my back garden at home. And uh, I was very proud of myself, but I couldn't wait uh, to see uh, what was going to happen. So about six weeks after I planted them, I decided to dig them up again and see what was happening. And of course, what I got was just a handful of mush and muck. Because the seed had died. You see, there's a little miracle in nature here. If you, uh, in the the days when we had turnips on our trousers, and we got some barley seeds in the turnips of the trousers, uh, they could stay there for years. And nothing would happen. But drop them into the soil. And immediately something begins to happen. The seed in the hand must be planted in the soil. And the first thing that happens is it dies. It surrenders to decay. And that death becomes the germination of life for a great crop. So expresses Don Carson. That death becomes the germination of life for a great crop. And we're confronted again here with with this great theme of John and his presentation of Jesus as the one who brings life. But clearly, the life must be preceded by death. And this little miracle of nature highlighted here that out of death comes life. That what appears lifeless in the farmer's hand and what will remain lifeless if it remains in his hand is actually the spring of life when it's buried in the soil and subject to decay. In this also there's an anticipation of a vital principle. In that failure to plant the seed, in other words, failure to subject it to death, any attempt to preserve it renders a harvest impossible. There can be no argument with this. 
For all Jesus' listeners knew, were familiar with rural and agricultural life, they knew this principle to be correct. Unless the soil come out of the, ha- uh, the seed come out of the hand and into the soil, there would be no harvest. Now, we're going to see tonight that that has deep implications, not only for Jesus, but for all who follow him. That life comes as a result of death. So we have a principle here which is very apparent uh, and operates in the natural world. But in it we also have a prophecy which could be fulfilled only by the Messiah. We have a prophecy here which can be fulfilled only by the Messiah. And, And by implication Jesus is expounding the truth on a different plane. What the listeners know to be true on the natural, on the agricultural level, Jesus declares to be true of his own destiny as determined by his Father God. And that's the significance of these words, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And this is the principle which is about to be worked out in his own life. That without death, without his death, there will be no harvest. And as it's expressed later on in our reading, without Christ being lifted up, men and women cannot be saved. There is no hope of salvation. Now, Christ describes his death here Because he is speaking about himself here and this, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He describes his death here in terms which which resound with victory. This is not defeat or disillusionment. See verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. His death might appear to many to be a defeat. His death and decay always seemed to carry with them those depressing overtones. But like the seed falling into the soil, the opposite is in fact true. Out of death comes life. And out of Christ's death will come life. Christ's death will accomplish a harvest of a kind and of an extent that is unimaginable. A vast crowd which no man can number of men and women brought into a saving relationship to himself and into the presence of his heavenly Father. I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. Do you know one of the joys of traveling with SGA is to go out into a land like Kazakhstan. I remember being there some years ago and we traveled up to do, it was the middle of the winter, we traveled up from, the, from Almaty where we were staying uh, overnight on a train uh, to a little village on the Chinese border. And we were picked up at the, the bus station there or the train station there and driven on ice, literally driven on ice uh, to the little church that we were going to stay in and have our school in. And, you know, 
the weather was foreboding. The conditions were primitive. The whole situation, you wonder why people would even want to live there. That's the kind of thing. But you know, when we went into that church building and we met our brothers and sisters in Christ there, an amazing thing, you know. God is people there. God is people there in a corner of the world, perhaps that nobody else knows about, that uh, few people have ever traveled to and ever seen. And God has his harvest in that place. And for me, I feel at times very humble. I feel very privileged to meet with these people. You know, some of them converted in the most remarkable of circumstances. Um, but reminding us that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, will draw all men to Himself. And so we don't have a we don't have a. If you like a sad sob story here in that sense. Yes, it is sad, it's tragic in a way. And yet within the, the tragedy, within the within the, the desperateness of the situation, there is this note of victory. That when Christ is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. So we have a principle which operates in the natural world. We have a prophecy which could be fulfilled only by the Messiah. Because what Jesus was speaking about here was himself. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Do you remember that scathing cry from the crowd when Christ was on the cross? He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Well, of course, the fact is that if he had saved himself, none of us would have been saved. The seed had to fall into the earth and die. A prophecy which could be fulfilled only by the Messiah. And then finally, and this is where we this is where the rubber hits the road, dear friends. Because we have a prerequisite here which determines a man or woman's eternal destiny. You see, if this is a truth which operates at the agricultural level. And if it's a truth which applies in a very primary sense of the Lord Jesus as the Savior who died to bring life, actually it is also a principle which is applied to human beings, to us. Let me think of, first of all, of those who are outside of Jesus Christ, those who at this moment are living in spiritual death. Well, you see, the Lord Jesus Christ talks about this. He talks about this, doesn't he? He says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What's he saying? He's saying that unless men and women themselves die they can't have life unless men and women themselves die to self if they would hold on to their lives if, they, if they're saying to God no thank you I'll, I'll control my own destiny I'll find my own way I'll make my own way through life 
And if they hold on to their lives like that, if they, if they, if they grasp their lives like that, if they love their lives in that sense, they will lose their lives, ultimately, in a lost eternity. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And what Jesus is talking about is the need for men and women to forsake self, to forsake sin, to forsake themselves, to forsake a, a, a way of life which centers around the I and the me and the my and the are or the we. And to find Christ at the very center. Now, of course, Paul talks about this and we, we know it because we, we even be singing about it tonight. Paul talks about being crucified with Christ. Having died with Christ. And that, this is a prerequisite, if you like, for a man or a woman to be saved, to to die to self. And you see, if you're here tonight, it doesn't matter how religious you are, it doesn't matter how good living, it doesn't matter how kind, it doesn't matter how, how successful any of those things, if, if your life at this moment in time, if the fulcrum of your life at this moment in time is you, then you're heading for spiritual death. Eternal death. If what drives you in life is me and my and I and we, then you haven't died to self. And you're going to suffer eternal death. But you see, for those of us who are believers tonight, (laughs) the rubber all hits the road here for us. Because the challenge is that we have to continually die to self. And our Lord Jesus expounded this And explained this in other places. When he talked about, you know, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. And it doesn't matter how long you live. Every day, every day is a battle to put to death the things that are of the flesh. To fight the devil And his attempts to derail and to destroy us. To do so in the power of the Holy Spirit and with the help of the Lord Jesus Christ. But every day, it's a dying to self. And and I believe that the principle that Christ is expounding here means that it's only as we we learn to do that, it's only as we, by the grace of God, die daily that we will truly live for his glory. You know, when you begin to pull together from different parts of Scripture, these Scriptures and verses and texts about life and about death and so forth, the whole thing builds up into a very challenging picture, both for the believer and, of course, for the unbeliever too. The Lord Jesus asked the question in Mark, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? 
And Luke recorded of the Lord Jesus, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The man or the woman, the boy or the girl who would respond to Christ's call to discipleship is left in no doubt as to the cost which must be counted. He or she must die to self. This was the problem with the rich young ruler, you know. Jesus wasn't expounding a, a principle there that we, we have got, all of us have got to sell everything we have and, and, and so forth. It wasn't that. It wasn't a universal principle. It was, it was a, a problem in that young man's heart in particular. Where as much as he wanted eternal life and as much as he wanted Jesus and as much as he wanted what Jesus could give, he wanted it after his money. He wanted it second. And you can't have Jesus second. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So the sequence, I think, is followed through thoroughly here. And the challenge is presented to those who, tonight, outside of Christ, are still at enmity with God. You need to be at peace with God. You need forgiveness. You need his new life. But you must understand us that in order to have that new life, you must be prepared to die to self. The seed died so that a good harvest could be produced. The Son of God died so that a harvest of redeemed men and women could be brought into God's barn. And a sinner must die to self and a form of sinful way of life if the harvest of a new life in Christ is to be produced in him. And the saint, the believer, must die daily if we are to live the kind of effervescent, powerful and effective spiritual life that the Lord desires from us. A young man named Jim Elliot, many of you will know this, with his wife and a missionary team, <clears throat> sought out and found an untouched tribe named the Aukas in South America so that they could share the gospel of Christ with them. The Aukas were headhunters. And Elliot and his friends, they knew of the danger of their mission. And almost prophetically, Jim Elliot wrote in his diary, unforgettable words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Well, Jim Elliot was massacred in his attempt to evangelize his people. But he's with Christ in heaven. What is more, one of the Aukas who was implicated in his murder later baptized the children of another one of those martyrs in the same spot on the river where his father and Jim Elliot had been murdered. Scriptural arithmetic. Whoever saves his life, keeps his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, will 
find it. Let's pray together.